right, we are going to be in Philippians chapter 1 today, uh, still early in our series here uh, in Philippians on the theme of joy. Uh, we've chosen this designation of choose joy, the, the, this exhortation, which really flows out of this letter. Paul in chapter 4 is going to tell them, rejoice in the Lord, imperative command, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. And so uh, we are exhorted to be people who choose joy. Uh, last week on our Wednesday night hub group, we had a fun conversation about board games. Uh, we try to take a little bit of time each week to just get to know each other a little bit better. And um, this was the question for this week. What are your favorite board games and why? And it led to kind of some fun little banter back and forth. One person said, anything but Monopoly. <laughs> like, my parents made me play. The games went forever. Anything but Monopoly. And then someone countered, Monopoly is one of my favorite games. But then they added this. Uh, it was the game we played on snow days. And it was the, the game we played at Grandma's house when we went to Grandma's. I thought that was interesting, isn't it? Kind of Not just this is the game I like, but sort of the context, the perspective. Uh, certainly these two responses probably betray something about preferences, but they also say something about perspective, don't they? Uh, when we attach certain things, uh, we think about them differently. When we attach certain things to our thinking, it shapes our, our thinking and our perspective. Uh, this little cartoon, uh, I think, reflects perspective. Here's the same incident, right? The guy in the top is standing on the island. He's looking out. He sees a boat, boat, boat. And the guy in the boat is looking at the guy on land saying, land, right? The exact same situation, and yet they're both viewing this from very different perspectives, right? Perspective is a really important thing, a powerful thing. And of course, once you've embraced a certain perspective, a given perspective, it can be hard to see a situation differently. We can get locked in to certain ways of thinking, and sometimes they're not healthy ways of thinking. But it can be hard to regain proper perspective. Uh, the eminent theologian Dr. Seuss addressed this dynamic in his book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. You'll be on your way, you'll be seeing great sights, you'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed, you'll pass the whole gang, and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest, except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can get all hung up in a prickly perch and your gang will fly on. You'll be left in a lurch. You'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump. And the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. 
right? So when we find ourselves in a funk or a slump, right, it can be hard to kind of work our way out of that. Sometimes we can fixate. I can fixate on the difficult circumstances in front of me. And unslumping myself is not easily done. Uh, Here's my thesis statement. Big idea out of this text. Uh, Joy flows from a gospel perspective. Joy flows from a gospel perspective. Sometimes, oftentimes, we have to rethink our assessment, our perspective on a given situation. Paul models this for us here in a very uh, powerful way in Philippians chapter 1. Paul was not writing from uh, a great spot in life or a great place in his ministry. Uh, He was actually writing from the context of very difficult circumstances. He was in prison. He makes reference to this in verse 13 of chapter 1. His chains, his imprisonment, his movements were restricted. He wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. And he also had rivals enemies who were trying to take advantage of the situation and make trouble for him, trying to hit him while he was down, right? As if things weren't bad enough. He had people uh, trying to, uh, to take advantage of his dilemma. So all these circumstances put together could have easily caused Paul to be depressed, angry, or bitter. That would be a very natural response And Paul knew that the church in Philippi was also discouraged by these circumstances. They were having trouble making sense of it all. But Paul, in these few verses we're going to look at, takes a very different perspective. A perspective that was shaped by the lens of the gospel. And I want us to consider these two difficult circumstances that Paul talks about here want us to acknowledge our natural reaction. You know, how I would typically respond to a situation like this. We could just be honest about it, right? But then to think about the circumstance from a gospel perspective. Paul's going to help us to do that. And I would suggest to you here that Paul was not only wanting you to understand his perspective... He wants these believers, these first century believers in Philippi, to also embrace a gospel perspective. Paul's going to say at the end of chapter 1, he's going to essentially say that these believers are going through the same things that he is going through. They're all going through difficulties and opposition for the gospel. Paul wants to view his circumstances through a gospel perspective. He wants these believers to view their circumstances through a gospel perspective. And he wants us to view our circumstances through a gospel perspective. So the first problem that Paul identifies is that of restriction. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what had happened to Paul? Uh, In the context here, 
of Paul's imprisonment, we know that he had been falsely accused uh, in Jerusalem. That's kind of how this whole thing got started. He was accused of having brought the Gentiles, some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people into the temple courts. He was accused of essentially having broken the Jewish law. And again, something he did not do, so he's falsely accused, but he is arrested. He is eventually taken to Caesarea, which is the Roman capital in Israel, the Roman headquarters. He is detained there in Caesarea for two years uh, while they're waiting for a bribe, right? So he's just sitting there. Time is ticking by uh, as he sits in in a prison in Caesarea. And then he is put on a ship to get to Rome, uh, a ship which, by the way, is shipwrecked, just to make life a little more interesting, right? And then he finally does get to Rome, but it was not how he would have envisioned it, right? Not exactly what he had in mind. Because he's then put in prison. So these circumstances would be hard for anyone. But I'm going to suggest to you that they were particularly difficult when you consider Paul's expectations, his longings, his desires, his heart. All right? So again, natural perspective, um, Paul must have been very frustrated maybe uh, depressed, maybe angry. Um, This is what we know about Paul's heart, right? Uh, Acts 19, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul had this uh, declared desire, longing to get to Rome. It wasn't a vacation destination. It wasn't to see the sights. It was because of the gospel. He wanted to be able to share the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ in the capital city of the known world. So Paul had been on record with his desire to get to Rome. He actually wrote to the church in Rome saying, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he he wrote to these believers. He didn't know them, but he wrote to them telling them about his desire to come to them. It was more than just something in Paul's heart, though. Uh, God actually indicated that he was going to go to Rome. Uh, The following night, Acts uh, 23, the following night, the Lord stood by him, stood by Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. At this point, Paul's in prison. uh, So he's maybe starting to wonder... Maybe I'm not going to get to Rome. And Jesus, in his kindness, actually says to Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to bear testimony to me in that city. So so all these things are building. This is Paul's framework. This is his context. But again, when he eventually did get to Rome, it was certainly not what he expected or the experience he was hoping for. Uh, We read about this in Acts 28, right at the end of Acts And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. 
So he's put in solitary. He's put alongside of a soldier who is going to restrain him, right? Um, at different times in Rome, Paul was under house arrest. He wasn't necessarily in a dungeon, but his movements were restricted. So again, according to any natural way of thinking, chains are an obstacle to progress, right? How could we view this in a positive light? And, and Paul knew that the believers were, again, discouraged by these circumstances as well. It's why he has to write to them like he does. I want you to know, brothers, I know what you're thinking, <laughs> but, I, but I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, My friend Matt, uh, my good friend Matt, took his family down to Disney World a few summers ago. Uh, they were going to be there for a week and take in all the sights. It happened to be one of the hottest stretches on record in Orlando. And on the first day, they all got a serious case of sun poisoning, just really bad sunburn. And that was the end of their trip. They sat in the hotel for the other days just feeling miserable. Ugh. You put out the money, you, 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 big expectations, right? And then, ugh, Kathy Murray went to, wanted to, had big plans to go see her son Jimmy in Jerusalem. Jimmy was studying at Jerusalem University College, and COVID gummed it up. I mean, Kathy was planning on that trip for over a year, and then she couldn't go. Just heartbreaking, right? So, so difficult circumstances are difficult enough, but then you couple it with expectations that are not met, dreams that are dashed, right? And that's really painful stuff. It's easy, natural, again, to be discouraged, to be frustrated, to be angry. What about the gospel perspective? Again, Paul views this circumstance differently than we might think. Let's pick up here, chapter 1, Philippians 1, verse 13. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. wants these believers to understand that his imprisonment had not impeded the progress of the gospel, but rather had served to advance the gospel. It's a very unique word there. Uh, The old King James rendering says these things have have gone for the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, It's a word that's actually used in the ancient world in a military context to describe uh, the, the claiming of new territory. Right? The, the, the soldiers move in and, and, and claim new territory, make new advances. And Paul says that's what's happened for the gospel. It doesn't really make much sense to us. How can the gospel be advanced when Paul is not even free to preach the gospel in the city? Uh, it's like when Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, before his impending departure, he says to them, it would be better for you that I go away. I mean, in what world is it better for us that Jesus goes away from us? 
right? But Jesus goes on to explain to them that if he doesn't go away, he won't send the promised comforter, the Holy Spirit. And we have a theology developing in that chapter that it's better to have the Spirit in us than Jesus beside us. Uh, there's this wonderful promise of the Spirit there. But, but again, at first glance, it's like, how could this be? And, and, and we feel the same way about Paul. How could the gospel have been advanced through Paul's restriction and imprisonment? Paul has two things in mind here that he unpacks in these verses. Uh, first of all, imprisonment brought Paul into contact with the palace guard. This was a reference to the most elite group of Roman soldiers who served as a special bodyguard for Caesar. And notice there's two groups here. If you look again in verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard or palace guard and to all the rest. This is presumably others uh, beyond the palace guard who were associated with Caesar, who were connected with Caesar's household. I mean, think about it. Paul's case was an important one. What are we going to do with these Christians? I mean, things are in chaos out there. I mean, the Jewish people are, are angry and there's all this discord. And can you imagine all the lawyers and the judges in Caesar's court pouring over the scriptures? trying to figure out what in the world is going on here with this Paul character. You know, that, that the gospel had become a big topic of conversation within Caesar's household. And Paul reflects on this. This is not unlike Joseph's imprisonment in Egypt. That's why I asked Tim to read Genesis 50 this morning, Right? Joseph had been thrown into prison. Uh, he had been betrayed by his brothers, thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were held. And this is how he came into contact with Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker. Prison was the secret passageway that brought Joseph into contact with Pharaoh himself. You don't just walk in the front door of the palace if you're Joseph. But you can get in through the prison, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> right? And so Paul goes through, Joseph rather goes through this whole thing with his brothers, right? Saying, yes, you were slime bags and you intended it for evil and you wanted to harm me, but God intended it for good. God and his sovereignty <laughs> was using these circumstances to preserve his people from famine in the ancient world. Paul closes his letter to the Philippians with this really interesting comment. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Again, the gospel had made its inroads in the most unlikely of ways. Truly, the gospel had advanced. Uh, it had gone into uncharted territory uh, in spite of Paul's imprisonment. Some of you might know the story of Susanna Spurgeon, a wife of the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon. Uh, she encountered many difficulties in her life. She was confined to her home after the birth of their second child in 1867. 
Uh, She had several surgeries by Dr. James Simpson, a renowned obstetrician, uh, but they were only partially successful. And so her life changed. She was no longer able to accompany her husband on speaking uh, tours and uh, travels. As a matter of fact, many times she was not even able to accompany him to church. But instead of feeling sorry for herself, she considered how she would invest her time. She had a growing burden to help provide resources for pastors, particularly in rural areas who had no books in their library, and she established a book fund. And she administrated this whole operation from her home, and over the next 28 years, she worked to distribute over 200,000 books free of charge to pastors. She was disabled. She was restricted in certain ways. I'm sure she wished it was different. <laughs> but her disability ultimately led to the advance of the gospel. And this is Paul's story. Paul has something else on mind too when he says that uh, his imprisonment led to the advance of the gospel. His imprisonment inspired other believers to speak the gospel with greater boldness. His imprisonment inspired other believers to speak the gospel with greater boldness. Presumably, this is referring to the believers in Rome, although it could be believers outside of Rome as well. We know there were believers in Rome, right? They greeted him when he arrived in the city. Um, And they were a faithful group of believers. They were sharing the good news of Christ. Uh, But these believers were deeply impacted by Paul's suffering, by his imprisonment, by his willingness to stand boldly for the truth of the gospel. They were moved, and they became increasingly bold in their witness. This, too, seems counterintuitive to me. If anything, it would seem that Paul's imprisonment would squelch the witness of local believers. Look what happens if you run afoul of the Roman government, right? But the effect was just the opposite. They maybe thought, if Paul is willing to sacrifice, I should be willing to sacrifice, right? Look at how God can work even in the midst of imprisonment. We've been hearing of people in Caesar's household who have come to know Christ. Uh, No matter how we slice it, this, this courage evidenced by Paul was contagious. And so, yes, Paul was limited in certain sense. He was restricted. But now hundreds of others had been emboldened to go and take the gospel. Actually, the gospel ministry was multiplied because of Paul's imprisonment. In 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake in England because of their faithful witness to Christ and their concerns over a distorted gospel that was being taught by the state church. As they were being led to the stake, Latimer shouted, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. In other words, be brave. 
We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. (laughs) And they did. Countless believers were emboldened by their sacrifice. We saw something similar in our country. 1956, Jim Elliott and his four missionary companions were killed, uh, taking the gospel to the Waodani people in Ecuador, a cannibalistic tribe. And these uh, Indian peoples killed these five missionaries. A tragic series of circumstances. And yet, out of that, thousands were raised up to missionary service. So Paul is thinking here, not just about the circumstances themselves, but was thinking about gospel impact, looking through a gospel lens with a gospel perspective. So the first problem was restriction. The second problem was rivalry. This is the second issue that Paul raises, the second difficult circumstance that he brings up. Notice how he describes it, chapter 1, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So again, many had been inspired to speak out for the gospel. They had become more bold. But not all of them were motivated by the right things. Some of them were motivated by love. Uh, They were concerned about Paul. They were committed to laboring alongside of him. He was restricted and they were willing to stand in the gap and speak the gospel in his stead. But others were speaking the gospel from a place of envy and rivalry. One commentator says the envious begrudge the successes of their opponents and celebrate their misfortunes. The envious person works to harm and ruin the object of envy. So some didn't like Paul. For whatever reason, the text doesn't really unpack it, but some of them in their uh, preaching of the gospel were trying to um, paint Paul in a bad light text actually says, goes on to say that they're motivated by selfish ambition, the opposite of love. Instead of uh, speaking the gospel out of concern for Paul, uh, they were speaking the gospel uh, in order to make a name for themselves or to advance themselves. Perhaps they were painting Paul in a poor light, perhaps suggesting that he had been rightfully imprisoned, perhaps trying to turn the believers against Paul. And read in context, all of these people who were sharing the gospel were fellow Christians. So this is friendly fire. Uh, And I wonder if this is perhaps even more painful to Paul than his imprisonment. Uh, We expect to be mistreated by unbelievers, by a secular culture. We expect to receive pushback when we share the good news of Christ, but... We don't expect to be slandered and misrepresented and betrayed by fellow believers, do we? And that stirs a whole other level of heartache and anger and mistrust. 
These are the natural responses, aren't they? This is how we would feel if we were mistreated by our fellow Christians or painted in a poor light or slandered. But what about the gospel perspective? How does Paul view these things? We read this in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in present in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What then? NIV says, what does it matter? We would say, so what? <laughs> the important thing is that Christ is preached. And in that I rejoice. Paul fiercely guarded the purity of the gospel. If people were preaching a different gospel or a distorted gospel, Paul would be confronting them. But the reality is they were preaching the gospel truthfully, faithfully. The problem wasn't the content of their message, it was their motivation. So Paul was able to step back and say, listen... This really hurts to hear these reports, to hear what people are saying about me. But the gospel is being proclaimed. And that's the important thing. And in that, I rejoice. I think here's the, here's the gospel perspective that flows out of that. Personal attacks are less important than the progress of the gospel. Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, um, confronted them about their division. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, they were so conflicted that they actually began bringing their, their complaints, their cases against, uh, to the secular courts. So this, this guy owes me money, we can't work it out. I'm taking you to court. And the end result, of course, of this is that the testimony, the reputation of the gospel is being dragged through the mud in the secular courts. And so Paul has some pretty strong words for them. He says to them, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? So this individual owes you $5,000 and you can't agree how to chalk it up as a loss. It's not worth it to jeopardize the gospel and the reputation of the gospel, just count it as a loss. Your rights are less important than the gospel and the reputation of the gospel. Well, that's a word we need to hear today. We're a rights-oriented culture. It's part of what it is to, if, if you were born in this country, it's part of our heritage. We, 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 we stand up for our rights. We don't relinquish our rights very often. Especially if you're from Texas, of course. We don't give up our rights. And yet Paul was willing to not defend himself, to lay it aside, because he valued the gospel more. Again, it's harder to endure slander, mistreatment from other believers than from unbelievers. How have you been mistreated and betrayed? And what grievances might you be holding on to? What would it look like for you to take Paul's perspective? 
to let go of those offenses, to view the gospel as more important. Again, he brings it. By the way, uh, bitterness and hanging on to, to those grievances uh, is not a path to joy, is it? <laughs> well, we know enough to know. Uh, we, we maybe battle our own grudges that we hold on to, but we know enough to know that bitterness leads to misery. And so Paul does something very powerful here. He, he owns the offense. He doesn't just pretend it didn't happen. It did happen. People are saying these things about him. He owns it. And he says, but the gospel is more important. I'm going to release these things. I'm going to sacrifice these things, my rights, my reputation, for the good of the gospel. This wonderful gospel perspective. And and this, again, is is where, of course, we see Paul giving his great statement here about joy, right? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Brings us back to our big idea. Joy flows from a gospel perspective. We've been looking at Pilgrim's Progress on Wednesday evenings. And uh, one of the encounters we just looked at last week involved uh, an individual by the name of Little Faith. Now you have to remember, Bunyan, as he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, is writing an allegory. So you have to use your imagination, right? But Christian is journeying along um, the Christian life. And he encounters this individual called Little Faith. And Little Faith had had some difficult circumstances. Matter of fact, we're told that he had been mugged. Uh, three bandits on the road got a hold of him and, and took all the money out of his pocket and kind of left him bleeding in the streets. So uh, Little Faith had had this difficult experience in life. The text also tells us that Little Faith... Uh, still had his, uh, his valuable jewels. Uh, the thieves did not take those, but they took his spending money. They took his pocket change, okay? But little faith kept fixating on the 20 bucks that got stolen out of his, out of his pocket <laughs> instead of thinking about these precious jewels that he still had in his possession. See, it was an issue of perspective. He kept losing sight of what he did have, and he kept playing the victim card, and he kept feeling sorry for himself, and he kept complaining about the 20 bucks that got stolen when he has these precious jewels. He chose to focus on the difficulties at work, a discouraging health issue, a financial setback, right? These are the... This is the the spending money that that he was lamenting, the little things that had happened to him, but he was failing to consider that he still had the really valuable stuff, salvation, a future inheritance, peace with God. Little faith was viewing his situation from the wrong perspective, losing sight of what he had and Quite often, I would suggest we do the same. A 
Joy is an emotion of hope. It's rooted in a confidence in something beyond our circumstances. It's anchored in the promises of the gospel. I think that's why Paul experiences joy as he embraces a gospel perspective. And so I encourage you to think about what you're doing to maintain a gospel perspective. Unslumping yourself is not easily done, right? We find ourselves in slumps. We find ourselves um, struggling with difficult circumstances. And we need to maintain the discipline, follow Paul's pattern here of looking from a gospel perspective. I think there's a few ways we can do that. Uh, making sure you prioritize uh, preaching. You know, to come and you know, we have all these commercials and we have all these things that are going on and, and to just come and sit under the hearing of the Word of God, right? Like you're doing today. And continue to remember uh, what is true and what God has promised. Uh, reading the Scriptures um, on a daily basis and memorizing and meditating on the Scriptures one of the Hebrew words for meditation is the word mumble. You know, it's, I just, five, four, three, seven is the code, and I'm trying to remember that, you know, five, four, three, seven, five, four, three, seven. I've got three other things to do before I get over to the lockbox. I'm mumbling that to keep it in the forefront of my mind, right? And that, that's essentially what gospel or scripture meditation is. So I take a verse that maybe deals with, you know, one of the promises of God, and I'm struggling with anxiety, and, I, and I, I meditate on that. I continue to shape my thinking according to God's truth. Connecting regularly with other believers who can correct your faulty thought patterns. We all have them, right? So little faith was only thinking about the fact that he lost his spending money. <laughs> and Christian and hopeful uh, come alongside of him on the journey and have to remind him of what he still has. And so the importance of having godly friendships around us to help us maintain that gospel perspective. But I'm praying that God gives me a gospel perspective. Too often I'm fixated on my circumstances, my, feet are, my, my, my gaze is looking down at the, the rubble around me, and uh, I, I lose sight of what God is doing, God's sovereignty and carrying out his plan how the gospel is being advanced, even though I am experiencing difficulty. (laughs) I'm praying that God would renew that perspective in me and in you as well. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to pronounce a benediction here out of Romans 11. And then we are going to sing It Is Well With My Soul. Some of you know the hymn story behind that song, uh, written by Horatio Spafford. Uh, His wife and his children were lost at sea, and he went, made the transatlantic voyage, and the captain said this is the the area where their ship went down, and uh, Spafford uh, chose to focus on the sovereignty of God, the purposes of God, even in unbelievable uh, grief. And so a great anthem for us as we close our time together.